Thank you, Pastor. It was a thrill to be back here again with you folk, and I mean it sincerely. The warmth of this church is felt when you walk through the doors, and, and I mean that sincerely. You folk have always manifested not only a love for the Savior, but a willingness to accept those outside your body with great warmth and seemingly appreciation for their willingness to be a part of the body, even for a short period of time. While sitting there and uh, singing, which I didn't do a lot of, I'm fighting a cold. This is not my normal voice. In fact, I was without a voice my last day in Vancouver and uh, taking all kinds of over-the-counter stuff. I think my wife is right, who's in medicine. Seven days with and seven days without, you'll do the same. <laughs> and uh, I've been better off. Medicine makes you tired and groggy and so forth and so on. So pardon that and pardon the dress, but uh, you'll accept all that, right? <laughs> but this, as I was singing, you'll never know how much that means. I know something about the hearts of a lot of people who've given, maybe not to this specific gift, but others that uh, I've written thank you notes to, I've written over 800 now, people who've given from a dollar to a lot more than that. And uh, it means a lot. That dollar means as much to me as two or 3,000 because of the heart that gave it and for the reasoning behind the gift. And I will wear that shirt with pride, and I mean that. You have been given by God a great shepherd in your pastor. He is well respected throughout the Northwest and I'm sure other parts as well. And I hope you pray for he and his wife on a regular basis. I'm always concerned when I step inside of a church represent missions, that the missionary is hoisted far above what they ought to be hoisted in the minds and eyes of people, and hilariously oftentimes given things when the shepherd is neglected. Never do that. That's God's gift to you. And he's given you a wonderful shepherd and a wonderful wife of a shepherd to work with you, to labor with you. At times, I'm sure, although he's not shared this, to cry over you as well as to intercede for you and rejoice with you. Pray for him, will you? Four weeks ago, Friday, <clears throat> I walked down the streets of Mongo. 
They're dirt streets, not paved, dusty, and often referred to, that is, the dust and the kind of dirt as moon dust, much like the dust brought back from the first walk on the moon. It's very, very fine, gets all over you, and you learn to live with it. It's not something you breathe day in, day out, but it's from off the Sahara Desert. It blows, and uh, you just walk through it, and it's kind of like you're walking on uh, something that's puffy. And then you just wipe the shoes off eventually and clean them out in some cases, depending how deeply down you go. But that's irrelevant to what impressed me. For as I walked down the streets, starting at 4.30 in the morning, that was not my walk, although I was up. This was evening time. And it was the fifth time that from the mosques, plural, came the cry for prayer. And as I walked down the streets, of Mongo by myself, people were pulling out their mats unashamed that they were going to kneel down, bow their heads to the ground, and pray to Allah. Oh, I didn't stare, although they would not have minded, frankly. It was something they were committed to. Whether I agreed with it or not, whether I believed they were praying to the real God was irrelevant. They were committed to Allah. And out came the prayer mats. And down to the knees they went. And then started the praying. Yes, my mind went back immediately to Acts 17. Literally, it went back there as if I was standing with Paul when he said he observed the unknown gods that they were praying to in Athens. But they were faithful to pray to those gods. Nothing and no one was going to stand in their way. They were committed to Allah and unashamed. Let me underscore that word, unashamed, to bow down even in the presence of some Christians in that community, some Buddhists in that community, Animists, for sure. But Allah called them to prayer. And down they went. Some physically impaired, but that didn't matter. They made their way down. And the heads to the ground as they prayed out loud to Allah. Why? The main thing was keeping the main thing the main thing. Think about that, because I want us just in for a few moments, 
as I share my heart in light of the fact that I've been doing a great deal of pondering about Don, his relationship to Jesus Christ, and asking myself the question, Don, what is the main thing in your life? Really the main thing. Not what you would expect to say in the presence of Christians, but what is the main thing in your life? And are you keeping the main thing the main thing? When you discover what it is, or ought to be. And so this morning, we're going to turn to a very familiar portion of the Word of God in just a moment. But I want us to look this morning at the consequences of keeping the main thing the main thing. I don't know about you, but I'll be very transparent with you. And I told that to Sue, pastor's wife. I enjoy the younger generation and their transparency and authenticity. I love it. So many of us have learned to grow up with facades that people eventually can see through. But I enjoy seeing people who are passionate about something. Maybe that's one reason I enjoy sports so much and participated in my younger years in athletics. That drive, that interest, that intensity, that focus, that energy, it does something to me. And I enjoy being around those kinds of people. People who are passionate about something really gets to me and excites me. However, I've noticed that it's quite impossible to be passionate about a lot of things. Have you found that to be true? I'm just going to be very earthy with you this morning, very... down on the bottom shelf. Very impossible to be passionate about a lot of things. And so I did a lot of thinking about this, and think with me for a moment, will you? For a long period of time, while our office was in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, on Thursday evenings, I had a Bible study with the Philadelphia Eagle football players and their wives. And we had anywhere between 30 and 40, majority unsaved, but religious. Reggie White was then a member of the Philadelphia Eagles, as was Herschel Walker, and a number of great ball players. And her, uh, Reggie had a tremendous impact in bringing these people in from the team. A man that was passionate, as was his wife, and as she is today, 
He's in glory. But I discovered as I was around these ball players off the field and when I went over to the stadium where they were, based upon their invitation, I would go. I'd be with them during a game, oftentimes if I was available, and I'd be with them off the field, outside the Bible study. I noticed this, passion doesn't flow from a divided heart. Passion demands commitment. You cannot have a divided heart and be passionate. Passion demands commitment. Passion doesn't flow from a doubting heart. Grab hold of this. Passion demands confidence. And passion doesn't flow from a distracted heart. Passion demands concentration. And I saw this in those football players, whether they were working out or actually involved in a game. They didn't have a divided heart, a doubting heart. They knew they could win. They knew what they could do. And they did not allow themselves in a game to become distracted because they knew the results of that distraction. And so they were committed to the task, confident they could do it. And they concentrated upon their responsibility as a part of the team. For the truly passionate are quite particular in their passion. Now think with me for a moment this morning, being very practical for a moment. If you had to do one thing, what would it be? You say, ha, Don, you're kidding. One thing. How about Andre, Don? No, one thing. Just one thing to which you would pour your passion and energy into it. What would it be? Those of us who know Christ need to think upon that question. What would it be? Because we're mere sojourners, pilgrims on our way to glory. This is not our home. Therefore, if we were going to be passionate about one thing and pour ourselves into that passion and energy, what would it be? In the midst of thousands of things, I must do and you must do, I'm sure. What is the one thing, the main thing? And I want us this morning, just in the few moments remaining, to take out 
the spiritual stethoscope and listen to the heart of a woman. If time permitted, I'd take you to the heart of a man. But I want to take you to a portion, as I mentioned, that's very familiar to you. Will you take your Bibles and turn with me to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke. You've known this story since you were a young child. If you came to church as a youngster, you heard it in Sunday school, you've heard it from the pulpit. I am sure. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, in particular, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, she was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I've been pondering that in 2011, literally. Story I've known, as you have. Picture the setting with me. The home belonged to Martha. Apparently, she owned it, according to the text. And her sister was there with her. Jesus had entered the home as he had previously. Now, in that day and age, when a visitor came, such as the Lord Jesus, oh, not because he was the Son of God, but because he was a visitor, you always poured out to that individual, as we would say in our society, the red carpet. You would lay out before him the best of everything, no matter who it was. I became very used to that in the Orient because the Chinese would always do that. They would give their best to you, no matter who you were. And so what Martha was doing was not unusual and not wrong. She 
she was preparing the best for the visitor, who happened to be Jesus Christ. The Lord. Martha was busy, frankly, doing good. But too busy doing good, if I may say so. Her eyes were on service. The enormity of the task. Here's a visitor. I must give that visitor the best we have as far as a meal is concerned. And of course, you women know well, you want to use the best of the dishes, etc., that you have to provide the food for that visitor. Not uncommon today, and it certainly was not uncommon back then. Her eyes were on the, her service, the enormity of the task. And she says, in essence, according to the text, I have to do everything. Now, none of you ever feel that way. I'm sure when a guest comes, no comments, ladies. But not only were her eyes on the service, on her service, but her eyes were on her sister Mary. The aggravation is manifested in the text. For she said to the Lord, she does nothing. Now in the language of that day, the language of Dr. Luke that is, those words are rather strong. She is irritated at Mary. Lord, she does nothing. I've got to do everything. So her eyes were not only on the service, the fact she had to do it, but her eyes were on the sister who was sitting at the feet of the Lord doing nothing. Think about it. Some of you ladies are saying, I can identify but her eyes were also on herself. Uh, she thought Jesus was apathetic. He isn't doing anything about it. That's what the text says. We just read it. She turns to the Lord, why don't you tell, in essence, my sister to get up and come and help me and prepare this meal for you. You're a guest in my home. She was concerned about herself, her own image. She wanted things done right, and rightly so. But just think, her eyes were on service, which is right. They were also on her sister, who should have been helping her from a human perspective, but then she was concerned about herself. Lord, why are you so apathetic and not doing anything about it? Saying to my sister, get up and come help. Martha's doing it all. 
But look at Jesus' observation, will you, with me? You, many things. Martha, Mary, one thing. Do you know in Scripture it's the most repeated command? We don't have time to go back. One thing. Very interesting to look it up. Only one thing is necessary. Now, some things are good, but only one is essential. Mary made the best choice, and it won't be taken from her. But let's go back and look at the two girls, the two women. Can we do that for a moment? Martha's choice and Mary's choice. Neither, listen to me, neither made an evil choice. Generosity, Martha, worship, Mary, both are commanded and commended in Scripture. Think about it. Generosity and worship, both are commanded and commended in Scripture. Martha's choice went bad when good superseded best. Troubled about many things. Pursuing too many things. And as I pondered upon this, I thought to myself, isn't it true, Don, in your life, when everything becomes necessary, the truly essentials get crowded out? That's what happened. And I want you to ponder with me for a moment. The main thing, the one thing Mary had chosen, and that was to abide in Christ, to dwell in his presence, to listen to him, and to respond in eager obedience to him. Do you see the setting? Here's Mary down at his feet. She's abiding in Christ, dwelling in his presence, listening to him, and responding with eager obedience to the Lord Jesus. The main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. May I say to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I have talked to the Lord about this in my own life, he oftentimes is 
crowded out as being the main thing, if I may say that, or the main one correctly. Because many good things in my life have crowded him out. Yes, even in ministry. The one thing to abide in Christ, to dwell in his presence, to listen to him, to respond in eager obedience. And I'll tell you how I know it's being crowded out in the church. Across America, more so than around the world, I'm talking about the evangelical church that faithfully preaches the gospel. The number of missionaries being sent out from congregations such as First Baptist Church in Ferndale is dwindling like never before in the history, recent history, of the evangelical church in North America. The decline is overwhelming. Missionaries are staying longer in raising their support than ever in the history of modern missions. World War II and the Great Depression, or the Great Depression and World War II, never saw giving in the evangelical church for foreign missions, that's how it's distinguished, never dropped below 10%. And in our evangelical churches, it's now 1.7% of the dollar. Going directly to foreign missions. And we've never been richer. The main thing is no longer the main thing. Getting the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth where people can bow and worship the true God. And eventually stand in his presence around the throne and sing worthy is the lamb. Doesn't exist by and large. It's become secondary. And it's my deep conviction as I look into the mirror of the word regarding my own life that we are crowding out the main task that's been given to the church of Jesus Christ namely the Great Commission. It's been given to the local church to be executed. Again, it's a whole another sermon in itself. We become complacent. Many churches that give 20, 25% have become complacent. 
That's marvelous giving, by the way, way above the average. Other things have crowded in. The budgets have been raised in other areas, and I'm not talking about Ferndale, I'm just talking in general. But as it relates to getting the gospel out, it no longer is top priority. Getting people to know about the Son of God. And I'm convinced in my own life, transparency, that takes place when I sustain the right relationship to Jesus Christ. When he is the main person in my life, he is the focal point. My heart's not divided, nor doubting, nor distracted. But I'm passionate about spending time with him, as was Mary. Listening to him. Dwelling in his presence. Responding to his commands with eager obedience. So send I you, and so I go. Whether it's to a neighbor, someone in my class at school, to a clerk in the store, I go. Why? Because those were the last words he spoke to the church prior to his departure to the Father's right hand. As my Father sent me, so send I you. He stated to the disciples, the nucleus of the first church, you're to carry it on now. Thirty-seven times, John, in his gospel, talks about the Father sending the Son. As my Father has sent me, 37 times. The 37th time, he turns to the disciples. As my Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The nucleus of the church. For this is going to be the task of the church in the future. That no longer is true in North America, in the majority of the churches in North America. It's become secondary. It's a mere program in the church. It's not the heart of the church, which is the heart, by the way, of the Savior. He died that men might have life eternal. He did not die on the cross so we could have more nice things. He died that man might have life eternal. With his shed blood, man was to be purchased out of the slave market of sin through the communication of the gospel from the lips of the believers in the local church. 
But the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. And as long as I allow many things to clutter my life, the main thing does not remain the main thing. But when I sit at the feet of the Savior and I abide in him and dwell in his presence and listen to him and respond to with eager obedience to him, I'm eager to get out and to share the truth about the one I love and the one who loved me so much that he gave his life for me. We're now into the second month of 2011. What is the main thing in your life as a believer? If you don't know Christ, you don't need to worry about that. You need to make sure that you come to the saving knowledge of the one who died in your place and make him then the main thing. But if you're a child of God, and I trust that's true of the majority in this auditorium this morning, you need to ask the question. Only one thing is necessary. Some things are good. Only one is essential. What is that essential thing in your life? Does it measure up to what God says ought to be the main thing in your life? Oh, my friends, if we would make that a reality, we would turn Ferndale upside down, let alone the world. I believe that. But the choice is up to you, and the choice is up to me. But the consequences of not doing it, we cannot choose. God gives those out. What are you going to do about keeping the main thing the main thing? Oh, this is thrilling. It's only a portion of keeping the main thing the main thing. It doesn't discharge all of our duty. And I have to remind myself of that when I put my tithe and offering in the church. Oh, may to this morning a radical transformation take place within your life as you think about the main thing being the main thing. Both were commanded. Both are commended. Mary chose the better. And God, that is the Son of God, rewarded her. Father, I just plead that I would by your grace, keep the main thing, the main thing in my life. You know how I struggle with that, Father. 
And I'm sure my brothers and sisters in Christ sitting out in the congregation, if honest with you, would say the same. May we not only desire, but have a passion to make the main thing the main thing. Sitting at your feet, abiding in you, listening to you intently, and with great obedience, eagerness, if you will, respond to what we've heard from your lips. For I ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen and amen. Pastor.